Hello, and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. By the time that Sherlock disappeared in November 1888, you could say that he was at the center of Watson's universe. Now, admittedly, Watson was married, and I think he was devoted to his wife and he loved his wife, but he was also devoted to Sherlock. There's been some speculation about the exact nature of their relationship, Watson and Sherlock, and some people have suggested that there was a sexual component to it. I don't think so. I think Watson's libido, which was pretty strong, was directed entirely towards women. And to the extent that Sherlock had any romantic inclinations or biological urges, they were also probably heterosexual. I mean, look at his admiration for Irene Adler. It wasn't just intellectual. He found her attractive. Watson was clear about that. And I think because Irene Adler was so clearly beyond Sherlock's reach, it was safe for him to express his admiration. The fact that she got the better of him has led some scholars to suspect that Sherlock had S and M fantasies in which Irene Adler would play a dominatrix role. But I think that takes matters a bit too far, and I'll just move on from there. In one of the later memoirs, Sherlock says to Watson, words to the effect of, you are the one fixed point in a changing age. I think this sums up one of the things that that Holmes liked about Watson. It was the idea that Watson could always be counted on for companionship and support, particularly in times of crisis. And the thing is, it doesn't just work one way. I think that Sherlock was the one fixed point in Watson's life. Sherlock had a gravitational pull emotionally, that Watson couldn't escape. Holmes was a source of endless fascination. His talent, his confidence, his dramatic flair, his masterful personality, Watson found all these irresistible. So when Sherlock disappears in November 1888 and Mycroft tries to convince Watson that his brother is a broken man, Watson just can't accept that. Some people might say that Watson wasn't psychologically equipped to believe this about Sherlock, that he was so invested in his friend, he couldn't imagine a world in which Sherlock was anything less than dominant. But I think I'd describe it a little differently. I don't think Watson was too dependent psychologically to handle the idea that Holmes could fail, that he could be broken somehow. I think it was that Watson had just become firmly unshakably convinced that Sherlock was the greatest man of his generation and that it would be impossible for Sherlock to collapse and self-destruct. And I think also, and this is just a guess on my part, but I think also that Watson had come to understand that Sherlock's habit of putting him down, of ridiculing Watson and dismissing him and misleading him, those were actually reflections of Sherlock's insecurities. In other words, They said more about Sherlock than they did about Watson. In an earlier episode, I did say that Watson always forgave Sherlock, which I took to be a sign of weakness. But as I look at these records and I think about their relationship and I put more time and effort into reconstructing these events, I think that there's another way to look at it. You could make a case that Watson's willingness to put up with this kind of treatment was a sign of his own self-worth and confidence. He knew that this behavior wasn't really about him and his failings and his weaknesses. In the end, 
This sort of behavior on Sherlock's part was about Sherlock. It was a reflection of him and his insecurities and his jealousies. So although Sherlock might upset him briefly or sting him sometimes with an unkind remark, Watson always knew in his heart that Sherlock was loyal to him and that Sherlock valued him. And for whatever reason, Sherlock had chosen Watson to be his closest friend. It wasn't just to have a ready target who was close at hand. Watson had qualities that Sherlock admired, and I think that is something that gave Watson confidence. Watson makes an interesting observation in the memoirs towards, at some point, I think towards the end of the memoirs, he says that Sherlock was always happy to receive valuable information from other people, useful information, and he would take advantage of that information, but he never acknowledged a debt of gratitude to the source of that information because he was so invested in projecting this image of genius because this was so important to him and he felt threatened if somebody questioned it or rivaled it that he couldn't bring himself to admit he was beholden to the person that had given him important information. I think that Watson and Holmes complemented each other in some good ways. On the surface, it did look like a one-sided relationship, and Holmes insisted almost always on having the upper hand. But when Watson put his foot down and told Holmes that he had gone too far, he almost always got an apology. And Sherlock always reassured him when he had to that Watson was, in fact, someone that he greatly valued. So having said all this, let me talk about Watson's notes and what they tell us about his thinking in the aftermath of the November 1888 disappearance. Because he trusted Sherlock and because he believed, it turns out rightly, that Sherlock would not have betrayed him by stealing his prescription forms, Watson rules him out as a possible culprit. He's also disinclined to believe that Mycroft would have done this to him, even though he recognizes that Mycroft had the opportunity. Because remember, Mycroft was waiting for Watson on that Thursday afternoon at Watson's home the day before they went off to Shropshire. So Mycroft had the opportunity to take this. And because of that, and because he didn't know Mycroft as well as he knew Sherlock, Watson didn't entirely rule Mycroft out as the person who had taken these blank prescription forms. But he also knew that the police force was riddled with corruption, and even the honest officers and officials in the police were territorial. They didn't want to be second-guessed by Sherlock. They didn't want some pointy-headed bureaucrat like Mycroft telling them what to do. So Watson could see a number of possible scenarios in which the police got access to his prescription forms and planted them in Sherlock's apartment in hopes of embarrassing Sherlock and his brother. I don't think we'll ever know how these forms ended up at Baker Street. My guess is that Mycroft was the one who took them. I think he wanted to drive a wedge between Watson and Sherlock at that time. This was a critical time. He saw Watson as weak and pliable, someone that Sherlock could manipulate pretty easily. He didn't have much respect for Watson's professional skills, and he didn't consider him particularly bright. He thought that Watson could be duped, and so in light of all this, and in light of his serious concern about Sherlock's drug use, he wanted to keep Watson away from his brother, particularly when there was so much at stake. Because remember, they're in the middle of investigating the Moriarty gang 
They're doing a financial paper trail investigation, and Sherlock's critical to the success of the operation. In the spring of 1889, Mycroft pays Watson another unannounced visit, and this is the first time in six months that Watson has heard anything from either of the Holmes brothers. Mycroft launches into some story about finding a body floating in the Thames. The police have fished a body out. We think it's Sherlock. We can't be sure because the body is so decomposed. However, we found a dental prosthesis in the pocket of the corpse. Mycroft produces it, shows it to Watson and says, does that look like the one that Sherlock was wearing on the day that he disappeared last November? I think this turns out to be a a turning point in Watson's relationship with Sherlock and, for that matter, with both of the Holmes brothers. To Mycroft's surprise, Watson doesn't bite. I should say that in doing this, Watson probably surprised himself. I think he, it was one of those situations that we sometimes have in our lives where we hear ourselves saying things that we haven't thought through, that the words come out before we've really thought them through or processed them. I think that's what happened here. Watson says enough is enough. He confronts Mycroft. You and your brother have consistently misled me when it was in your interest to do so. I'm a doctor. How dumb do you think I am? You think I don't know how people are identified? You think that just because a body's decomposed, that means it can't be identified? That's insulting. I'm calling your bluff. I know who Sherlock's dentist is. Tomorrow, let's go down, let's bring him over to the morgue, and let's have him examine the teeth on this cadaver. And he'll give us an answer. You and I both know that on top of any other dental work that Sherlock may have had over the years... He had an artificial tooth implanted some years ago to replace his left canine because that had been knocked out by a guy named Matthews during a fight in the Charing Cross Station waiting room. So we're going to be able to settle this pretty quickly. And I want a yes or a no from you right now. Are you willing to go down, get the dentist, bring him to the morgue and settle this once and for all? He's clearly caught Mycroft by surprise, and Mycroft is sitting there trying to look impassive and thinking about his options. Watson doesn't let up. He goes on and says, you know where Sherlock is. You want me to think he's dead. You're worried that I could interfere with your investigation. You don't trust me to resist him if he tries to contact me and get morphine. Again, there's no response, but Watson is on the attack. He's got the advantage, and he says... I think you know that I've been looking for him. I've made intermittent attempts to find him. I've gone to opium dens and flop houses down by the waterfront, and I think you've heard about this. I know you don't want me nosing around. You don't want Moriarty to hear that I've been looking for him. You might actually even care about my safety. You might worry that I get knifed in one of these dens of iniquity or that Moriarty finds out and kidnaps me and tortures me to see if I know anything. But what do you expect? Do you think I'm just going to sit idly by and let you lie to me about my my friend and cut me out of his life? If you want me to stop looking for him, you need to tell me the truth. And at that point, Mycroft comes clean and says, yes, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to take the risk and tell you. And obviously, what I say stays between us. I was involved in coordinating Sherlock's disappearance in November. I made arrangements for him to go directly from Wolverhampton to a safe house in London. And for the past six months, we've been moving Sherlock from one safe house to another. 
He's in charge of the investigation into the Moriarty money laundering operation. I've put together a team of financial investigators to do the legwork, and Sherlock is in charge of running the day-to-day operation, the day-to-day investigation. Do you remember a guy that Sherlock might have talked about, a guy from the Moriarty organization, an employee, somebody that Sherlock called Fred Porlock? Now, as an aside, this guy Porlock does actually make an appearance in one of the lengthy memoirs, a memoir entitled The Valley of Fear, but that wasn't published until 1915, and that was long after Porlock had died. I only mention this because Porlock does show up once in the official records, but let me get back to what Mycroft is saying. This guy Porlock has been instrumental in helping us, and whenever we hit a dead end, Porlock points us in the right direction. The problem is he won't work with anybody else. We have to keep Sherlock involved for that reason alone. But this place is both in great danger. If Moriarty finds out, he'll kill them. We can't communicate with Porlock by mail or telegram. We have to use drop spots, these prearranged locations. And then sometimes they actually need to meet in person, which is really dangerous. That's part of what we're doing. There are all kinds of things that could go wrong here. This is one of the reasons that Sherlock needs to stay involved. And the other reason is that I have too much work. I have too many other things, too many other responsibilities to allow me to run this investigation. There's nobody else who can do it. I can make certain government resources available for Sherlock. He has to do the rest. Try to imagine how much pressure this places on me and my brother. This is our one chance to bring down the Moriarty crime syndicate. We used to think that the professor was the most dangerous man in London, but Porlock has convinced us that it's the second brother, Adam, who poses the greatest threat. The professor created and built this criminal network, but he's lost interest in the day-to-day operations, and for some time, he's been totally focused on amassing an enormous art collection. He's got a warehouse full of art, paintings and statues and tapestries, all kinds of artwork. He convinced his brother, Adam, to resign his position as a station master and, for lack of a better term, become the business manager. Porlock believes it's only a matter of time before Adam figures out what we're up to. The slightest mistake, the merest slip on our part is going to bring the investigation crashing down. So again, you have to understand what a tremendous risk I'm taking in telling you this. There's some conflict and friction in the Moriarty organization, particularly between Adam and the professor. Because the professor is spending money as fast as he can, the Moriarty organization is on the perpetual brink of insolvency. They're always playing catch-up. And the brothers argue all the time over the professor's profligacy. In fact, it's the professor's extravagance that led the organization to expand into prostitution. Adam didn't want to do this. That's what Porlock tells us. Adam thought it was dangerous. He thought it was a bad idea. And it turns out he was right. But the professor said, I'm not going to curtail my spending. It's your job to bring in the money and you're not bringing enough in. So figure out another way. I suggest you move into prostitution. And that's why they did it. And then they made the mistake of putting Jabez in charge. And you know what happened. These horrific murders, the public outcry, the politicians and police officials running for cover, and the Moriarty's have been on the defensive ever since. So there's this conflict going on within the Moriarty organization, 
And that is something that may buy us enough time to bring the case and put everything together. Now, on top of everything else, we need to also acknowledge Sherlock's drug use. We've kept it under control for the past six months because essentially he's a prisoner. He's under our constant supervision. We've got a doctor who's available at all times, and we've taken great pains to control Sherlock's morphine intake. We've even managed to lower his dose incrementally, but we haven't been able to stop it altogether. We can't take that risk, at least not now. We need to keep him functional until the investigation's complete. And at that time, I'm going to get him into treatment. So that is the essence of the conversation between Mycroft and Watson. And as I said, I think it's a turning point. Watson sticks up for himself. Watson calls their bluff. And Mycroft, for the first time, shows Watson some respect and comes clean and tells him what's going on. At the end of that conversation, the last thing I'll say is that Mycroft promises to keep Watson informed about Sherlock and says, in exchange, you need to stop searching for him. You need to act like you believe he's dead. And Watson is agreeable to that. We don't have a lot of details about Watson, what he's up to for the next 18 months. We know that in the fall of 1890, Mycroft sends a letter to Watson and tells him that the Moriarty gang has been brought down. Or as Mycroft puts it, quote, the back of the business has been broken, unquote. It turns out that the professor has fled England. He's gone to Italy. Colonel Moran is with him. Colonel Moran shows up again in the official records in The Adventure of the Empty House. And then we learn, according to Mycroft, that shortly thereafter, Moran kills the professor in a dispute over money. And then Moran disappears. He's found again in England sometime in 1894. But for the next three years, he's on the run. Adam had already been driven out of the Moriarty organization after a bitter argument with the professor, and he has been captured in Rotterdam and is about to be extradited to England. Jabez is on the loose, and ironically, it was his violence that saved him, because after the three most vicious murders in the late summer and fall of 1888, and due to the ensuing outcry, Adam and the professor had to send him out of the country. In the fall of 1890, the Moriarty gang has been broken and Sherlock has agreed to go into treatment in Switzerland and Mycroft promises to keep Watson informed. Then the next thing we know is that two weeks later, Mycroft sends Watson another letter saying, Sherlock was in the custody of Detective Inspector Lestrade, Detective Inspector Gregson and two constables. They were taking him to the hospital in Switzerland and he disappears on them and we don't know where he is. So for the next three months, Mycroft is trying to track Sherlock down all over Europe and they finally catch up with him in Marseille. And the only reason they catch him is that Sherlock's basically has one foot in the grave. He's completely strung out. His health is broken. They put him in the hospital, and it takes a month before they're even able to move him, before he's healthy enough and strong enough to travel. And at that time, they get him straight into this treatment program in Switzerland. By now, it's the winter of 1891. And over the next year, Mycroft is in touch with Watson periodically. He explains that patients in this program are not allowed to have any kind of contact with people outside of the program except for immediate family. Holmes is not allowed to write Watson. Watson's not allowed to write Holmes. They're not allowed to have face-to-face contact. That's why Sherlock has not been in touch with him. Over the course of the next year, Mycroft's reports to Watson become more and more optimistic. And then in the late winter or early spring of 1892, Watson learns that Sherlock's about to be discharged and, and he'll be returning to England with Mycroft. 
In late May 1892, Sherlock is back in England. Watson meets him at Mycroft's office. So the two Holmes brothers and Watson finally get together in May of 1892, and Sherlock is back to his old self. He insists that he's completely cured, and he assures Watson that he'll never take cocaine or morphine again. His doctors have convinced him that he has to abstain completely. There's no safe middle ground. He can't use these drugs recreationally. He's prone to addiction. He can't take that chance. He wants to talk about Jabez Moriarty. On the way back from Switzerland, Sherlock and Mycroft stop in Paris to meet with Porlock. Porlock has moved to Paris and assumed a new identity, but Porlock still has some information. And he tells Sherlock that while you were being treated, there were a couple of horrific murders in the United States. One was in New Jersey, one was in New York City, and they happened right around the time that Jabez was sent out of England. Jabez could have committed these. The timeline works. These murders are reminiscent of the Ripper murders. So Sherlock, who has had no access to the news for over a year, immediately conducts his own research And by the time he's back in England, he's convinced that Jabez is behind these American murders as well. Sherlock thinks that Jabez is somewhere on the east coast of the United States, and Sherlock's determined to find him. And then Sherlock says, Watson, I'm sorry about your wife. I know that was hard for you. And that's about the best Sherlock can do. He's just not capable of doing much more than that. But he says, I'm I'm sorry about your loss. And then he goes, I know you're not happy to be a general practitioner. You've never liked it. You don't want to do it. I've contacted a cousin who's interested in buying your practice. He'll give you a fair price. We can get this done quickly and free you up. You and I are starting to make some money off these memoirs because another one had been published in 1890 under the title, The Sign of Four. We've got every reason to think that we'll be publishing additional memoirs We're going to be making more money. And then on top of everything else, the professor's artwork, that warehouse full of artwork was seized and all that art was auctioned off. The government has given me and Mycroft a nice payday, a reward for our role in recovering this artwork. Sherlock says to Watson, quote, we have money and enough, unquote. I'm headed to the United States. I hope you come with me. I could really use your help. Watson knows that Holmes is vulnerable to depression and a potential relapse if he's idle or if he's bored. So he and Mycroft both know that it's important that Sherlock be engaged in challenging work. This is going to be a challenging case. And in addition, if Sherlock's in the United States and he does relapse, there's no way to know whether he's going to get adequate medical assistance, whether anybody's going to be on top of things and be able to take quick action. The idea of sending him 3,000 miles away without access to a doctor is terrifying. So Watson agrees. He says, yes, I'll go. And that's why in late June 1892, two gentlemen land in New York City, presenting themselves as John Hazelhurst and William Scott. In the next episode, we'll start talking about how they were involved in the Borden murders. I hope you join me. And until then, take care. Take care.